You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of eastern Iowa and northwestern Illinois. And I'm your host, Robin Johnson. Today we're stepping back on Heartland Politics from current political news, the Iowa caucuses and all that. And we're going to be talking about a new book that combines politics and sex and our American culture. Got your attention? No, this isn't about Donald Trump or Bill Clinton. This is about the American film icon, Charlie Chaplin. I'm joined today by author Scott Iman, whose book is called Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. I've got to confess, I really wasn't aware of this. And Scott uh, uh, has been the author of, of numerous books on Hollywood icons, including on my show, I've interviewed him about John Wayne, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda. Uh, So it's really nice to have you back, Scott, and congratulations on this book. Well, thanks, Robin. I'm glad I'm here. Uh, You've also written books, uh, and I haven't, I've started the one on Cecil B. DeMille, John Ford, but um, I'm curious after all the wonderful works you've done, uh, what led you to this story in particular? Well, I've always loved Chaplin. He was my he was my gateway drug into silent movies, basically. So he, he's responsible for my career uh, indirectly. Uh, but I never thought about writing a book about him because in my own library, I've probably got 40 books on Charlie Chaplin. I've got books in German. I've got books in French. I've got books in Japanese on Chaplin. And I don't read any of those languages. I, I just, you know. I, I I just built up a, a library on Charlie Chaplin, but it was it was kind of uh, academic because I never really considered doing a book about him. But when the uh, pandemic came down in the early part of 2020, I had just shipped off my Cary Grant book, and normally I take time off, six months, nine months, whatever between books. But it looked like it was going to take a while, you know, and I didn't want to necessarily uh, 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 sit around twiddling my thumbs for years on end, so I needed to come up with a book, a project that I could do uh basically at home which meant uh digitized research because all the libraries were closing down uh the libraries i usually use library of congress uh the academy library in los angeles ucla usc all that as well as some presidential libraries so uh i had to come up with with a project that i could do the bulk of the research remotely and then i remembered well that the chaplain archives were digitized completely digitized uh, and then I had to think, well, what could I write about that hasn't already been written about in terms of Charlie Chaplin? So it was basically a process of elimination. And I thought about it for uh, like a weekend, two or three days. And I realized that one of the uh, 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 most destructive acts of his life, uh, everybody talks about his childhood as as being uh, the crucial period in defining his character. But uh, equally as destructive was uh, his banishment from uh, America, his adopted country, in 1952. And I thought, well, maybe this has been covered extensively in other books. So I started plowing through my library. Not really. Uh, There are one or two very good uh, comprehensive books on Chaplin. 
And they kind of took a couple pages to go through it, you know, but they didn't really go into any kind of forensic detail. And I thought, well, there's a story. I mean, the world's most popular comedian uh, uh, banished from his adopted country for rather vague reasons, actually. Uh, so I decided to make that the uh, subject of the book. The chaplain of state agreed to give me access to the archives uh, remotely. And I was off and running for, oh, about the next two years, just basically working off the archives and my own files. Over the years, I'd interviewed a lot of people uh, who had worked with Chaplin, uh, his son, Sidney, uh, his assistant, Jerome Epstein, uh, Tippi Hedren, who was in accounts from Hong Kong, Claire Bloom, who was leading lady in limelight. Uh, and I pulled those out of the files. And uh, luckily, uh, just as I was getting to the end of... Uh, uh, the digitized research, uh, uh, the pandemic began to ease up and libraries began to open up. And we were able to complete the uh, the rest of the research process by going to the Library of Congress and the Nixon Library and the Truman Library and a few other places that I don't usually go to. Uh, but they had collections that were uh, directly bearing on on the subject of my book. That's a long Just answer to a short question. No, that's fine. Uh, to set this up a little bit for our listeners who, who may be like me and not not is aware of this as perhaps we should have been, but uh, how, I, I mean, we all associate Charlie Chapman with silent movies. Um, just how big was he in the American film industry at that time? Let's just kind of set the table here a little bit um, before these controversies started occurring. Well, he was crucial in the formation of the American film industry. And he was crucial in the formation of the world film industry because he made the world safe for uh, uh, directorial autocrats. <laughs> basically <laughs> uh, he 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 uh, uh uh he he sees the means of production within months of his entry into the movie business at the end of 1913 at Keystone Studio in LA uh and started and dem basically demanded direct to direct his own pictures and and Max Sennett grumbled and bitched and moaned and, and essentially let him direct his own pictures and they proved to be extremely successful uh and two years later uh uh, uh he signed a contract that paid him three quarters of a million dollars a year uh, to make two reelers. And in 1918, he basically became his own producer. He, he built his own studio on La Brea Avenue in L.A. Uh, he began financing his own pictures, as he continued to do for the next 40 years. Uh, he didn't take any studio money, whatever, because he believed that if you took money, you'd have to take their advice and you'd have to take their notes and you'd have to do make compromises. And he wouldn't compromise where his work was concerned. The only way to really uh, retain autonomy was to finance his own movies, which he did. Uh, so, A, that's a fascinating story. And all this was uh, underwritten by his enormous worldwide success. The Tramp character that he invented was was considered to be French in France. And in Germany, it was German. And in America, he was regarded as American. And, of course, in England, he was regarded as English. And he essentially was an English construct. Uh, but the tramp became a universal, a universal symbol of, uh, the dispossessed essentially. Uh, so in that sense, there was, there was, he was a one-off. There was no one like him. No one followed in his footsteps commercially. Uh, and no one really followed in his footsteps aesthetically either, because the difference, difference between Chaplin and other comedians is that Chaplin was always connected to the real world. Uh, his movies relate to things that were actually going on outside. They weren't, he wasn't one of those comedians who, who mugs and makes funny faces and is trying to take the audience away from their troubles. What he wanted to do was reflect the real world back at the audience uh, with a comic inflection, a world that the audience actually recognized from their own experience. Uh, and that's what he did throughout his career, essentially. Interesting. 
Okay, let's let's get to, uh, the, the topics of the title, the politics part. Uh, what got him in trouble politically, uh, specifically? Politically, uh, he got into trouble uh, with uh, making the great dictator in 1940 his satire of Hitler because it was regarded. Nobody wanted the film made. Uh, the Motion Picture Association didn't want the film made. The British Foreign Office didn't want the film made. Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister at that point, and he was trying to placate Hitler uh, by appeasing him. Uh, certainly the Germans didn't want the film made. Uh, and the American public really uh, wasn't terribly interested because in 1939, when he began shooting the picture, uh, the uh, the uh, 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 the American public was essentially indifferent to the war in Europe that had already broken out. Uh, the Jews were not our problem. Hitler was not our problem. If he took uh, if he he already t he had taken uh, uh, Italy, of course, and he'd taken Germany. And he was in the process of taking France and doing his best to take England. And the general theory was that uh, if uh, he took Europe, then we just have to make a separate peace with Hitler. And Europe wasn't our problem. Uh, so we were it's an isolationist country, and it was an isolationist film industry. But he, was, he saw Hitler in the same way that Franklin Roosevelt did and that Winston Churchill did. He didn't think you could make accommodations to fascist uh, dictators. You had to destroy them. And his weapon was ridicule and comedy. That was what he did. So he undertook the film, and to everyone's shock and amazement, it was a considerable uh, commercial hit, made a lot of money, and it was a good critical hit as well. So he proved them wrong, uh, even though basically it's the ultimate uh, premature anti-fascist film. Uh, and that didn't really change. The isolationism of the American public didn't change until Pearl Harbor, and Pearl Harbor is not until December of 1941. So he was swimming against the tide, and he offended a lot of people. And then he offended them further uh, once the war began by proselytizing for the opening of a second front to aid Russia, who were our allies at that point, 1942-43. And his reasoning was simple. Uh, the, if we made Hitler's second front, because Hitler was not just fighting in Europe at that point, he also had to fight in Russia. If we made the second front as difficult as the, uh, the European front was, the sooner we could defeat him. And the sooner we could defeat him, the better off we'd all be. So, uh, but this was regarded as uh, overly sympathetic to communism, uh, strike two. And then his sex life uh, uh, erupted in 1943 and became what amounted to strike three. Uh, there was a, uh, a girlfriend of his uh, came into town after they had split up and accused him of uh, uh, fathering the child she was carrying. Uh, he did the math and realized he couldn't possibly be the father. She brought a paternity suit against him. The government brought a suit for violation of the Mann Act against him. The Mann Act was about transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. Uh, he won the Mann Act trial in court. The jury deliberated for an hour and found him not guilty. Uh, he took a blood test in the paternity suit. The blood test proved he was not the father of the child, and he lost the case anyway. Because at that point, uh, the uh, uh, blood test was not dispositive in California courts in, in a paternity trial. The jury could overrule the blood test if they so desired. And they so desired in the case of the Chaplin case. Uh, he appealed. His appeal was denied. So for the next 18 years, he had to pay child support for a child that wasn't his. I'm sure you can imagine how delighted he was about that. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, the, and that while the paternity suit was getting underway, uh, he married his last wife, his, his uh, Una O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill, the playwright. 
she was 18 he was 53 or 54 uh which in a roundabout way seemed to confirm the uh, burgeoning public impression of him as a libertine uh the marriage was a roaring success they were married for the rest of his life they had eight children together but in 1943 uh, it seemed to be uh, almost a, a thumbing of the nose, a thumbing of his nose against uh, public sentiment. So, uh, at, at, from that point on, the the uh, conservative columnists in the the Hearst newspapers and the Chicago Tribune papers and the uh, New York Daily News uh, syndicate began slagging him on almost a weekly basis. The government began an intensive investigation of every aspect of his life. They surveilled his house. They opened his mail. They uh, uh, went over his corporate and personal income taxes with a fine tooth comb, basically looking for anything they could find. And they really couldn't find anything. Uh, they knew he was not a member of the Communist Party very early on and never had been and never donated a dime to the Communist Party. But they wanted to, uh, uh, the the prevailing forces wanted to give the impression that he was somehow un-American. So the pro the propaganda uh, kept up on a, on a weekly and almost Month, certainly a monthly basis and almost a weekly basis at times for the next uh, uh, 10 years. And this was the Truman administration, uh, the attorney general and the Truman administration that really pushed this. And then along comes the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee as well. Well, the Un-American Activities Committee uh, was going to call him for making the great dictator. Uh, but after Pearl Harbor, that kind of went away. They They, they thought, well, maybe not. Uh, he was never subpoenaed for the 1947 hearings because by that time, the uh, uh, the FBI had the membership roster of the Communist Party, and they knew exactly who was in the party and who wasn't. That's why everybody, the Hollywood Ten, all the members of the Hollywood Ten, the reason they were called to open up the uh, uh, the hearings into communism and, and show business was because they had the membership roster, and every one of them either was currently a member of the party or had been a member of the party and resigned. But they couldn't say they couldn't deny they were members or uh, et cetera, whereas Chaplin could because he'd never been a member. So they didn't call him. Uh, so they couldn't get him on his politics. Uh, what they could get him on was just a general air of uh, uh, moral disrepute, uh, which is essentially the uh, 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 the reasoning behind uh, uh, McGranery's ban rescinding of his reentry permit. Uh, the the core issue was Chaplin never became an American citizen, which was always used, also used against him uh, for years as somehow being uh, unfriendly to uh, the country where he lived. Uh, what they didn't understand was that he had, he simply wasn't patriotic in any con kind of conventional sense. A friend of his named Max Eastman said that what they didn't understand was that he was born in England and became rich and famous in America. If the reverse had been the case, if he'd been born here and gotten rich and famous in Europe, he wouldn't have become a citizen in England either. He simply didn't think in those terms. And he thought patriotism was basically uh, 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 potentially lethal in any country if taken to its natural extreme. So that's the reason he didn't become a citizen in America. Uh, but that was that was the lever by which they could get him out of the country because they, the, uh, the INS had given him a reentry permit when he went across uh, to England to open his latest film, Limelight, in 1952. And one day out of New York on the Queen Elizabeth, uh, they rescinded the reentry permit and said he'd have to uh, take appear to hearing uh, to prove his worth to reenter the country. Now, what he didn't know was that about a week after the uh, reentry permit was rescinded, 
the INS had a meeting in which they went over the Chaplin case and they came to the conclusion that if he came back and if he appealed, they'd have to let him back in the country because he'd never been convicted of a misdemeanor, let alone a felony. Uh, but he never came back because he was furious and livid and uh, felt he'd been badly used. And he vowed uh, that he wouldn't come back to America. Uh, he had a lot of logistical problems. His money was here. His stocks were here. His films were all here. Uh, but luckily, his his wife was an American citizen. She was born here. So she could come back and take care of a lot of the financials. His brother was also here who could help him logistically. Uh, and he only did come back once in 1972 to get an honorary Oscar, which was 20 years after he was kicked out of the country. Listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is author Scott Iman, who's the author of a brand new book called Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Um, a fascinating book on a period of, you know, period of time that uh, I wasn't quite aware of this. It, 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 again, involves an American film icon who ran afoul of the United States government. And um, this is a, a, a book is kind of a cautionary tale for our times as well, to some degree, I think. Uh, but it's it's a really good book. I recommend you go out and buy it. It'd be a great last minute gift uh, idea for people in your family, whether they like politics, film, culture, history, it's all there. And uh, uh, Scott, I, I just, I read this book and um, uh, it, it, it's frightening, the powers that came to be uh, aimed at one person uh, that the United States government uh, undertook here. That was, it was a bad time. I mean, I guess Chaplin, you could say, just had the misfortune of um, b being caught in, in hard times, how they changed in the country in the post-World War II era. Um, well, he he he, he, would, he developed a pretty philosophical attitude about about uh, the country. He he believed he on the one hand, he never could have had an equivalent success in any other country on Earth. And he understood that and he recognized that and he would he would he would acknowledge that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he wouldn't have gotten kicked out of any other country on Earth either. So it's a, it was yeah. a double edged story. But he at, at the end of the I use it as the, as the closing of the book. Uh, he did mellow in later years, and and when people would visit him from America, he would always ask them to stuff their suitcases with as many Almond Joys as they could possibly get, because he couldn't get Almond Joys in Switzerland, where he went to live. Uh, but as he said, uh, 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 he could never have found any kind of, uh, of equivalent uh, life for himself uh, anywhere else in the world that he'd found in America. And besides that, that's where he met Una. And Una was a validation to him of all the... Of, of, all the struggle, all the uh, the previous bad marriages and bad relationships had all been worth it because they prepared him for the great love of his life at the end of his life. And for all the outstanding work he did, um, silence and talkies, uh, this really kind of hampered his career. It really put a had a major negative impact on his career, did not after all this. It did. Limelight, his last film that he made in America, is is a lovely film. It's it's a really beautiful film. Uh, he made two more movies in Europe after he left America, uh, A King of New York and Encounters from Hong Kong. And neither one of them is remotely, remotely on the level of the films he'd made in America, uh, even, uh, in sound, you know, uh, in talkies, uh, as we as we quaintly call them. Uh, uh, of course, he stubbornly refused to acknowledge that, you know, because he was too close to them. But it did affect his work uh, negatively uh, because I think he was very secure 
within his studio that he built in 1918 and secure within his feelings of the country. And as I mentioned in the book, if you live in Los Angeles or New York or Madrid or London or Paris, these are creative places to be an artist. You're, you're abraded in, in every day with, with one thing or another. You read newspaper, you see other artists, you go to the theater, you read the newspapers. Switzerland, where he took up residence for the rest of his life, is very lovely, and it's a lowering of the temperature, which is, I'm sure, why he went there, aside from the tax advantages. But it's also a little dull, and, and there's a sense of stagnation that can come over you, and which he would acknowledge from time to time. At one point, he told his wife that he was getting uh, 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 housebound by the snow, and he wanted to go to Morocco just to feel the heat, to feel some heat, you know? Uh, but there was a certain stagnation that can set in, and I think it affected his work negatively. I, we've got about five or six minutes left here, and I, I want to give you plenty of time on his continuing relevance in in, in modern time. Well, there you go, modern times. Modern times, yes. Um, a couple of things in, in your closing chapter there uh, that you talked about involving the Solidarity Movement and then uh, Ukraine's president. Uh, yeah. evoking him, which I, I wasn't aware of, that, to demonstrate, again, his continuing relevance in our world. Yeah, just when you think uh, times have moved on, something happens to make to make him even more relevant. You know, yes, uh, President Zelensky of the Ukraine uh, 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 mentioned that what we need is someone like Chaplin to make a great dictator for our times, from our modern times. He said, but he closed by saying there's been, I closed by saying there's only been one Charlie Chaplin, which is true, which is true. Because Chaplin was more than uh, uh, had beyond a pol his political point of view, which is interesting because most comedians want to take the audience away from the contemporary reality. They want to give them a, a, a relief from contemporary reality. There are comedians. I mean, I'm thinking of people like uh, uh, Red Skelton or Danny Kay, you know, of uh, 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 the 1940s and 50s, very popular comedians. But they were. There's a lot of mugging. There's a lot of a, a, a lot of mugging. A lot of face making. There's not. There's no sense of reality to the comic, to the comedians, to the to what they're saying. They're very uh, stylized. Chaplin's connected to the real world. Was always connected to the real world. In the same way that somebody like Jackie Gleason was always connected to the real world. The Honeymooners is all about reality. It's funny. He puts a funny spin on it. But there's no way to deny uh, what what Gleason is concerned with, you know. So there's these two disparate streams of comedy in American comedy. Uh, and Chaplin always stood up for comedy that relates to the audience's own experience. Share how he was also brought up in, in the Solidarity Movement back in the 1980s. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you look at modern times, if you look at the great dictator, they're perennially relevant. They really don't date because the authoritarian mindset is always with us one way or another, someplace or another, uh, as is the idea, as is the difficulty of staying a human being in a culture that becomes increasingly mechanized and incre increasingly commercial and increasingly impersonal. Let's, let's close. I got, I got about uh, th three or four minutes here, Scott, uh, just, I, I've got to do this. I always do this with you uh, when I have you on, on your books about, uh holiday hollywood celebrities what are the i can probably name these but i'm i'm asking you what are the top three or four chaplain movies that if people aren't familiar with him and i can't believe too many are but if there's younger people out there that are interested in this that who maybe aren't as familiar what uh three or four movies are must-sees of chaplain's work 
Well, you need to see the kid. You need to see modern times. You need to see the great dictator. Uh, I love the gold rush. I think his most perfect movie is city lights, but that's about the tramp. That one is one of the few of his uh, later features that is less personal. I mean, it, it's very personal. It's about the tramp and it's about the, the ultimate picture about the tramp. And it has less to do with the real world. All the other, all of his other pictures, like the gold rush, the kid, modern times, uh, certainly the great dictator are very much plugged in to reality. City lights is more insular, but it's also possibly his best picture. Certainly it's his most perfect picture, you know, shot to shot, cut to cut. It's 86 minutes of perfection. Uh, so any of anything from 1921 on is going to repay, repay, uh, a study and or, and, or just repay a look because you won't be bored and you will be delighted and you will be amazed. His most political picture obviously would have to be the great dictator. Do you think, or I always, I, I, modern times I thought was, was very political in a very, uh, interesting way, just on the pressures of, uh, of society moving forward in an industrial economy. Oh, it is. It is. But it's not, it's, there, there's, there, it's not a left or right politics. You right. know, that's the interesting thing about modern times. It's about the pressures of mechanization and the dehumanization of, of the 20th century, essentially. And nothing has changed except more so. We're more so than we were in 1936 when he released the picture. Uh, but it's it, that's a picture that's eternally relevant because we all feel I, th I almost everybody feels hemmed in and and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, hemmed in, hemmed in by the the structures of the modern world and our responsibilities and the necessities of making a living. And how do you survive as a feeling emotionally relevant human being when the world isn't really interested in that? My favorite moment in modern times is a little throwaway moment. We were introduced to the tramp in the factory and it's six o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning and everybody's starting their shift and the machines are going and the assembly line's going faster and faster and the tramp's trying to keep up and trying to keep up and the mood is frantic. And then we cut to the uh, president of the corporation, right? And he's doing a jigsaw puzzle in his office. <laughs> And it's not that he's—it's not that he's insensitive or a beast of uh, whose iron heel is grinding down the worker. He's got his own problems, and he's got his own life, and he's just not that interested in the problems of the people that work for him. And so, the problem is not necessarily politics; it's indifference. We don't—people don't pay attention to each other. Not really. We we pretend to, but we don't really, you know. And I just thought he inst he instinctively understood the problems of of the interconnectedness or the lack of interconnectedness of people in a way that most people don't because they go for the easy alternative oh those SOBs, they're not treating people well blah 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 on both sides whatever your politics are you know it's always the other guys the heavy but what if there aren't any heavies right what if we're all the problem you know <laughs> what would he say about today's world with the phones and all that would be really oh, interesting well, he, He'd think that was he'd think that was absolute lunacy because that's essentially the, the 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 people's addiction to smartphones is is and basically just as a means of diversion from like looking around you and seeing what's going on, you know. Right. It's not that you're actually getting a steady stream of things you need to get through the day. You're not. You're just checking on Facebook and you're checking Twitter and you're checking this and you're checking that because you're addicted to the to the the the, the, the little those little caffeine hits, you know. 
that the phone gives you. And he'd understand that perfectly and he'd have a lot of fun with it too. People walking around the streets with their, you know, looking at their hands, bumping into, into light bulbs. <laughs> Scott, uh, Scott Iman's been my guest today on Heartland Politics. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, this is a, a, another incredible work in a series of, of just outstanding books you've written. This is called Charlie Chaplin versus America When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. Uh, congratulations on another outstanding book, and thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Robin. Anytime. Always a pleasure talking to you. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.